All right, so we're going to close up our series, and this week it's called The Forgotten God Who Never Forgets. And the reason for that is pretty, pretty simple. We've seen uh, nine chapters already where God, even though he's never mentioned, is all throughout the book. He's working behind the scenes. He's orchestrating things in such a way that he turns the tables on Haman, and he rescues the people of God, as we saw last week, even though they don't deserve it. Um, he does it because of his own, own name, his own sake, and he never forgets. He never forgets where they are, what's going on, and that's an encouragement to us. It's definitely an encouragement to me <laughs> that God never forgets what's going on. And um, I don't know what you're going through in your life, but you, you have issues and challenges, and um, sometimes we... Even as we go through those, those times, those periods of life, we kind of forget about God. We get so self-consumed that we just forget about him. And yet he never forgets about you. Think about that. The God of the universe never forgets about you. I forget about you all the time. I don't, I don't want to disappoint you, but um, next Thursday when I don't have to get up at four and drive in here, I'm not going to think about you in the least. But God never stops thinking about you. And he never gets his eyes off of you. And so that ought to be an encouragement to every guy in the room that we have a God who's that intimately involved in our lives and cares that much about us. Now, I love this from uh, Frank Turner. This is from a commentary he wrote. He says, the story of Jesus ends with a vision. He has risen. And the New Testament continually and confidently connects the resurrection of Jesus with the future of the people of God. So in other words, if we don't have a resurrection guess what? We don't have a future, and we're not the people of God to begin with. The New Testament provides testimony through and through of the presence of hope in God's eschatological tomorrow, the future. The goal of divine providence is God's future action in resurrection and new creation, wherein God will transform the present structures of creation into the everlasting kingdom of God. Our ongoing experience of the good guidance and watch care of God for all of us on the journey of faith as we walk on this earth nurtures the vitality of this hope, the integrity of the vision. Now, that's a very um, wordy, difficult, somewhat confusing definition of providence. But really, all he's saying, guys, is that ultimately, providence is about the future. The involvement of God in your life and my life in this life is all about the future. It's all about the future resurrection, the future glorification of our bodies, the fact that he's going to send his son back someday and he's going to take his church, and then that's going to be followed up with the return one day for him to set up his kingdom on earth, that there is a future. And so everything happening along the line of life for us is pointing towards that. Now, what's our problem? We tend to focus on the point in time in which we live, whatever, whatever we're going through right here and now. And God has something else that we can't see, that we don't know about. And that's really, when you go back and read the story of Esther, that's what you see. Nowhere along the way did Mordecai and Esther really understand all that was going on from the point that Esther became queen all the way up until Haman became second most powerful man, got the edict decreed by the king. All throughout that story, they really never knew what the future held. And they lived in the moment. They lived in the moment of, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? There's an edict. We're all going to die. And yet they didn't know that the point was coming as we saw last week in chapter 9 that God turned the tables. God rescued them. They overpowered the enemy. 
So the story is one of God's providential plan that has a future and an end. And we don't know all about that end other than the fact that we do know that we win, that his son does return, that he will set up his kingdom, and that it ends well for all of us in the room who have faith in Jesus Christ. So as we end up in chapter 10, and we're going to read it in just a second, it's only three verses, so it won't take us long. What's the point? Why have we done all this? Now, it's been encouraging to me to have guys come up and say, man, when you said we were going to study Esther, I thought, why in the world are we going to study Esther? And it's exactly what I thought you would think. So many of you, when I announced it, were not that excited about studying a book that has the name of a woman on it. And yet I've had so many guys say, this has been one of the best studies we've ever done. And I think it's because of the nature of the book. It's, it's a story that is very real and lifelike. Here are people living in the midst of a culture that's totally against them, totally opposed to them, and suddenly the world turns in on them, attacks them. They're in the minority. They seem hopeless. They seem helpless, and yet their God's there. Their God rescues them. And it's the story of us. It's the story in which we live right here and now on this earth. And so I think that's why it resonates so this, this story of Esther, why, why did we do it? Why are we finishing it? What's the purpose? Why is it even included in the Bible? You know, one of the things that jumps out at me is that it's really this journey of faith that we just talked about in this definition. We are on a journey of faith. Esther was on a journey of faith. I don't think Esther's faith was that great at the beginning. I don't even think Mordecai's faith was that great in the beginning because I think they, like most of the people in Persia, Jews in Persia, had long ago forgotten about God. And yet God hadn't forgotten about them. And sometimes it takes God to restore our lost faith in him because we wander away. We forget about him. We get busy with life. And, and it's a story of faith, but it's not really the story of Esther per se. It's not the story of Mordecai. We've said that over and over again. It's not even about the people of God. What's the story about? The story is about God. This is the story of God. And, it, and it's, not, it's not unlike every other book in this Bible. It's, it, the whole book's about God. It's the revelation of God. And so when we read the book of Esther, and, and even when we study in the summer the, the teachings, the Sermon on the Mount, those three chapters that have this incredible teaching of Jesus, it's, it's really about God, his view of God and the kingdom of God that he came to bring. So the book of Esther is about God, and it's ultimately about his sovereignty, his providence, his power, his plan, and that no one, including King Ahasuerus, can stop that plan. Remember when we started... Uh, nine weeks ago, chapter one, it painted this picture of Ahasuerus as this incredibly powerful man, rich beyond belief, power greater than any other man or any other king at that time. Persia was the greatest nation in the world at that time. And we're even going to see today in chapter 10, he's still powerful. He's still ruling. And yet the story of Esther is not about King Ahasuerus. It's about God his power, his sovereignty. And I think the goal of the book when it was written was to instill in the Jews and instill in you and I as the people of God today, a faith in God that we can trust God. 
You know, my wife and I were driving home from a, um, a prayer time we have with a group of couples that we've known for years, and we meet once a month, and we happen to meet on Wednesdays, which is a nightmare in a way, because I got to get up early the next morning, and we have prayer time, and sometimes it takes forever for the prayer request to be shared, and stories are told, and I'm in a hurry, hurry up, tell your, what do you want us to pray for? Shut up, quit telling stories. Um, and um, we're driving home, and my wife runs a foundation that does work in Ethiopia, and her phone's just, you know, like exploding. And I said, honey, you need, put your phone away. It's 9.15, 9.30, we're going home. She goes, I can't. I said, yes, you can. She goes, no, I can't. I got to deal with this. I said, no, you, you, what if you didn't have that phone? Well, I do have that phone, and I got to deal with this. This is, this is coming from Addis Ababa. I got to deal with it, and I said, it can wait till tomorrow. Said, no, I can't, because it's an eight-hour difference, and it'll be Friday there, and I got to do it. And, and she had just had all this angst, and we had just prayed at our prayer time about her angst and her anxiety. And it goes back to, and I said, where's your faith? Now, I can tell you this. She didn't want to hear me say that. You know, it's like, shut up. I'm taking a text. Um, but where's our faith? And I think this book has really driven home to me how little faith I really do have in God. I can say I have faith in God. When push comes to shove, though, I, I, I really don't live like I have faith in God. I worry. I fret. I get anxious. I try to fix things on my own. And if I've learned anything from studying this book, teaching this book, thinking about this book, is that I have a God so much greater than I am. And he's doing things that I can't even see. And my best laid plans are nothing in comparison to his plans. And so it's about faith, but it's about faith in the right thing. The saddest thing about this story to me is how it ends. And it ends how it began, which is God's nowhere to be found at the beginning, and he seems to be nowhere to be found at the end. Where's the faith? Where's God? And I think it teaches you and I that God has a purpose in everything. Have you ever been going through something in your life and you go, what good could ever come out of this? And, and, and it's usually when we're in the midst of something really difficult and we just think this is the worst thing that's ever happened to me and nothing good can come out of this. But yet years later, maybe even just months later, you look back and go, man, that's one of the best things that ever happened to me. Why? The providence of God, the power of God. It, it hurts for the moment. It's painful, as Paul says, this momentary light affliction, but it's producing in us what? Godliness, holiness, righteousness, dependence. Remember, we talked a couple of weeks ago about what, what's necessary for you and I to see God. Adversity, vulnerability, incapability, dependence, which then leads to expectation. But without adversity, guys, we, we just don't really need God. We don't seek God. And we have to believe that everything that God brings into my life or allows, and this is, this is an interesting um, Debate, I guess is the only word I can think of right now. I got an email from a guy who, who comes to a Bible study, and he was, he was wrestling with, okay, how much of this is God doing it? How much is it, of it is just Haman doing it? Is God making Haman do it? Is, is God behind the king? Is God, okay, what of it is he causing? What of it is just he allowing? Here's the answer. I have no clue. I don't know. 
All I know is my God's in control. Is he making Haman do something? Is he causing him? Well, James tells me God doesn't tempt anyone to sin. He doesn't cause anyone to sin, but he's definitely in control. Just like you read through the book of Exodus, it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And you can do all kinds of mental gymnastics to try to get around that, but it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart and he changed his mind. He was going to let him go and then he changed his mind. Why? Because God hardened his heart. I can't explain that. I don't understand it. All I know is that God allows things for a reason. He allows them into our lives, but he also causes things to happen. And he never makes a mistake. I make them all the time. But my God never makes a mistake. And guess what? He never owes you or I an apology. He never has to go, "Ah, I am so sorry. That was like the dumbest thing I ever did. I can't believe I did that to you. But I was busy over here, and, and I, I, just, I, I just did it. I, I'm sorry. No, everything he does, everything he allows, everything he causes is for a reason, and it has a purpose behind it. And, and no matter how much you read the scriptures, I, you know, I've been studying through the life of David, and I'm in chapter 12 right now where... Nathan the prophet comes to David and he says, um, he tells him this little story about a guy who took advantage of someone else, a rich man who took advantage of a poor man. And it was all for the purpose of convicting David about his sin with Bathsheba, Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah, her husband, so he could have her as his wife because she was pregnant with his son. And it took Nathan the prophet to convict him. And one of the things that happens in that story that we gloss over is that not only did God convict him, but God said, the son that she's going to have because you impregnated her through adultery is going to die. And you read that and go, wow, what'd the kid do? Kid didn't sin, but the kid's going to die. And and your first impulse, my first impulse is that's just not fair. But one of the things we have to learn about God is he never does anything that's, that's unfair. He never does anything unjust. He ne- never does anything that he has to apologize for. He never does anything that is imperfect, immoral, unrighteous. We may not understand it, but we have to trust him in it. And so all those things that happen in your life and in my life, we have to realize that he knows what he's doing. He does have a purpose And he's not so transcendent up in heaven that he can't deal with it or he's not too weak to take care of it. We have to trust him. This all goes back to faith. This is a story of faith. Faith in a God that can't be seen. Faith in a God that you turn around, he doesn't seem to be there. If you judge him based on circumstances, you will always reach the conclusion, my God is not there. Because while things may be great today, tomorrow they may be different. Um, and so if you only think God is with you when things are wonderful, tomorrow when things are not so wonderful, guess what? Your God must not be there. And that is not what the Bible teaches. This book and the rest of the Bible teach that my God is there all the time. And so here's, here's one of the lessons I get from the book of Esther is this. The problem is not with God's providence. There are a lot of people in Christianity today who struggle with the providence of God, that God is in control. Because they look around and they go, well, if he's in control, then he's not very good at his job. 
because this sucks. Excuse my French. And, and they struggle with the idea that God's in control of their life because they want to be in control of their life. The, the, the book of Esther doesn't seem to have any trouble with the fact that God is providential. As a matter of fact, that's the whole purpose of the book. The problem is with perspective. What's our perspective? Just so, like we said last week, when you, when you read chapter 9 and you see that after all God had done for them, they decide to have a celebration, a two-day celebration that's still practiced today among Orthodox Jews, traditional Jews, Purim. It's less about God than it is about them, us, Mordecai, Esther. It's a historical event that they celebrate, but it's, they've lost the perspective of who brought this about. Well, Mordecai, Esther, she was queen. He was her cousin. It, no, God did. And when we look at the providence of God, we look at it from a human perspective, which is pretty natural because we're humans and we have a human perspective, but that's not the right perspective. We have to view things through what does the Bible teach us about God? What do the scriptures reveal about God? Because our perspective is warped and limited. We can't see what God's doing. And so that's why we start to doubt that he's not here. And I get a regular flow of guys that come into my office and, and who are at one point in their life doubting the presence of God. I don't know where he is. I don't know what he's doing. I don't know why he's left me. I don't know why he's forsaken me. This doesn't make any sense. My wife has left me. My finances have, have just evaporated. What, what's going on? Where is God? Well, God hadn't gone anywhere. But from man's perspective, it looks like he has. When you read this book from a human perspective, in other words, if I took this book out of its context and just bound it in a normal paperback version and handed it to a lost person and they read it, what would their con conclusion probably be? It's, it's a historical event. Mordecai and Esther were probably real people, and they saved their people. But they wouldn't see who in it, God. It's just, it's just not natural. But a, a person who knows of God, believes in God, would read the story and go, no, that's God. That's a God story. That's, that's him working. So it's perspective. What's, what's your perspective? Do you have a human perspective or a God perspective? You know, one of the guys came up to me this morning and asked me, am I going to say anything about the book, The Shack? No. Um, but I am. I'm about to, but probably not what you think. I've already put stuff on Facebook and, and gotten inundated with um, disagreements. All I did was post an article somebody else wrote about the shack saying six things wrong with the shack. And then I was getting responses from people, most of whom go to this church, who are saying, oh, that book changed my life. It's the most wonderful book I ever read. It's all about forgiveness. It's all about this. It's all about the love of God. And all I'm trying to point out, and what the author was pointing out, is it's got a lot of really, really bad theology in it. Really, really bad theology in it. And even the guy who wrote it admits that his theology is not orthodox theology. I mean, he's admitted that. And so now a movie's coming out. And the problem with the book, one person wrote, well, you don't like the book because it portrays God as a black woman. I don't, I don't care if it portrays God as a chimpanzee. I don't, I don't care if it portrays God as a unicorn. 
That's not my problem with the book. It's what the God portrayed as a black woman does and says in the book that I have a problem with. Because it doesn't portray God as God. And that's what makes it a dangerous book. Because I read it, and here's the problem in the church today, is that many of us read books like that, and we read them from a human perspective without our true understanding of who God is. And we read them, and we think, well, it's written by a Christian, so therefore it must be a great book. No. Go look at the Bible. What does the Bible say? Because that book is one man's view of who he thinks, how he views God, but it doesn't gel with Scripture. It's perspective. It's a warped perspective. And, and I think what happens is you read it, and what the book and the movie, I, I'm assuming the movie's going to follow the book pretty closely. What it will basically say is God is a God of love, and God will ultimately redeem everybody. Problem. That's not the Bible. God is a God of love. But guess what? God doesn't redeem everybody in the end. Always don't lead to his heaven. And so we got to watch our perspective. Even when we view God, even when we read scripture, we've got to look at it from, from a biblical, godly perspective. Otherwise, we begin to doubt and we have this earthly viewpoint. And so many of the responses that, that come in when you criticize a book like The Shack are earthly from their viewpoint. And they say things like, well, I love the book because it, 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 it changed me. I say, I, I can't argue with that. It may have. You may be a more forgiving person because it's ultimately all about forgiveness. But you still can't ignore the fact that it's got bad theology. No, let me put it another way. It's got heresy. And I said heresy, not hearsay. It's heretical. And we got to be really careful about stuff like that. Because we bring this earthly viewpoint, is it, it made me feel good. Joel Osteen has sold millions of books. Why? Because they make people feel good but they're full of heresy. Now, you may not like that. You may love him and watch his TV show. You may donate to his. I don't know. But guys, I'm just telling you, go look at what the Bible says. And if we, if we approach God and life from a human earthly perspective, guess what? We will never fully understand God and we'll never fully understand life. And so that's why we tend to live by sight and not by faith, but it needs to be the opposite. We need to trust God that he does know what he's doing, that he is faithful, that he is working his plan to perfection. And just because you can't see him doesn't mean he's not there. And see, if you, if you want God to always be the God who makes you feel good, guess what? You'll find a God that will do that but it won't be this God. God's not about making you feel good. God is not about making your life wonderful or your best life now. He's out to radically change your life from the inside out and then ultimately to glorify you. That's the end game. That's the goal. That's the objective. And otherwise, if we look at him from an earthly perspective, a human perspective, if he doesn't do what we want him to do, he must not love me.
he must not care. See, that's a dangerous thing to do with God. Because here's what I know, just as a human, as a dad, I, I, over the years, did things to my kids and on behalf of my kids that they thought were the worst thing I could have ever done and hated me for it in whatever way they could hate at whatever age they were at. But dad, I have to have that. No, you're not getting one. But dad, I have to go to that. No, you're not going to that. But dad, you don't understand. Yeah, I really do understand. And it's not going to happen. Why did I do that? Because I hate my kids? No, because I love my kids and because I know what's best for them. And at the moment, they didn't understand it and they loathed me for it. But as they've grown older, they look back and go, thanks. Thanks for protecting me. Thanks for loving me. See, sometimes we don't understand just how much God loves us. And we certainly don't understand his providence. Here's what providence should, should teach you and I. And this is in your notes, so you don't have to write it down. It teaches us to look for God. We've already talked about this. How do you see the unseen God? How do you, how do you see the God who sees everything? You just can't see him. Well, you, first of all, you've got to start looking for him. Look, look for him in the everyday affairs of life, that just the things that are happening in your life. Where is God? Could that be God? And nine times out of ten, if not ten times out of ten, it will be God if you'll look for him, if you'll begin to seek him. It also teaches us and reminds us to expect God. See, that's the saddest thing to me, that we don't expect to see God work. That little five-word chain of events I gave you that started with adversity a couple of weeks ago and ends with expectation. The adversity we can't do anything about because it just happens. The expectation is something that we need to develop in our lives that we really do expect God to work. Why? Because he's sovereign. Why? Because he loves us. Why? Because he's going to honor his name, protect his name. He's going to act. We just need to expect it. And then we need to learn to wait. Oh, this is the part we hate. I hate to wait. You know, joking with one of the guys who also goes to the same prayer time that we have on Wednesday nights. It's always before a Thursday night. And there's at least one couple in our group and I love them to death, but sometimes it takes them a while to share their prayer requests because their prayer requests are always associated with stories. And you'll sit there with your pen posed over your page. Okay, what do you want us to pray about? And, and it just goes on and on and on. And you're like, okay, I still don't have anything to pray about. Okay, what, what, are you, what, is it, what, are you, what are we doing here? And then she'll be talking, and he'll go, no, 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 but you forgot the part about, and then she'll go, oh, that's right, that's right. And, then, and you're like, okay, but I still don't even know what we're praying about. And 30 minutes later, you've you got an empty page going, great story, but what am I praying for? And I'm so impatient. And my wife always tells me, your body language is horrible. Because <laughs> I'll sigh, I'll tap my pen, I'll look at my watch. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and they're still, you know, it doesn't phase them. They're still telling their story. And then it boils down. Finally, they're done. Oh yeah. And and pray for this. And you're like, that has nothing to do with what you just talked about for 30 minutes. Patience, waiting on God, waiting on God is really hard guys. But providence inherently means we have to wait. Why? Because God knows what he's doing. Just like Mordecai, Esther, and all those Jews who lived in Persia had to wait a year to see the salvation of the Lord. I don't even want to wait a day. 
But see, we have to wait because it's God's plan. It's his timing. And then we need to learn to thank God when he does come through. You ever been saved by God, rescued by God, bailed out by God, and you don't even remember to thank God? You're just so busy partying. So grateful that thing. Oh, man, that's, oh, I'm finally out from under that. I don't have that hanging over my head anymore. And you, just, you, you don't even remember to thank God. Remember last week, what do they do? They schedule a party, a two-day party. It's still going on today. And, and yet they left God out of the party. We, we, providence means I got to look for him. I got to expect him. I got to wait on him. And then when he does act, I got to thank him for what he's done. So let's read these three verses. It won't take us long. Chapter 10. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land. So he's still king, right? Started out in chapter 1, he's king. Chapter 10, he's still king. He imposes a tax on the coastlands of the sea. And all the acts of his power and might, there it is again, he's still powerful, he's still mighty. And the full account of the high honor of Mordecai, who's now second most powerful man, to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. So here, we've, here we are. We're at the end of the story, and once again, you got King Ahasuerus. He's still king. He's imposing a tax. He's still got power to do whatever he wants to do. You got Mordecai, who's now the second most powerful man, and he's highly regarded, highly respected, and he's renowned for what? He's renowned for having saved the people. It's interesting that Esther gets kind of left out of the equation, and she's the one that risked her life going into the king, but Mordecai, for whatever reason, chapter 9 and chapter 10, he's the one that gets elevated. Maybe it's a form of, you know, Looking down on women in that day, I don't know. But Mordecai and Ahasuerus are recognized, and what are they recognized for? Power, position, rank, authority. So you've gone from chapter 1 to chapter 10, and it's still all about what? Man. It just so happens one is a Jew, but where's God in all of this? See, it ends with an emphasis on a man. It began with an emphasis on a man. Ahasuerus. At the end, it's Mordecai. Mordecai the Jew. And he's second in rank only to the king. How did we get from chapter 1 to chapter 10 and we still don't have God? We still don't have him being mentioned. We have Mordecai who is now rich and powerful and popular. How did this happen? Happens every day. Happens in my life. Happens in your life. You know, my wife and I were talking just the other night how easy it is at the end of the day if I, if I think about it, and I don't normally think about it, if I ask my wife, how has your day been? She will tell me about her day. And of course, my mind is already thinking about how my day was and how my day was worse than her day. And if she'd hurry up, I'd tell her how bad my day was. But she can go through her little spiel about her day and leave God completely out of it. And then when it's my turn, I can vent, moan, and, and, you know, or talk about the successes of my day and leave God completely out of it. And so last night, as we're driving to the prayer time, I said, where have you seen God in your life today? I don't know what possessed me to say that, but it was really interesting because she just sat there and she went. That's what she did for like five minutes, driving in the car, just 
I said, did you hear me? She goes, yeah, I heard you. I just don't know what to say. And I said, isn't that sad that here we are, we both love Christ, we, we, we were both involved in ministry, and I ask you, where have you seen God today? And you have to wait to figure out where you saw God today. And, and, and that's, that's sad. And the same thing's true of me, guys, that we, we can go through life and we can forget about God in our life and not even be able to say, man, he was here, he was there. Or even ask one another, what's God taught you this week? Don't ask about each other's jobs. Don't even ask, hey, how's your wife? How's your kids? What has God taught you this week? And here's what I think might happen. The same thing that happened with my wife. There will be this long pregnant pause. Um, what has he taught me this week? And you could even have been in the Word that morning. Here's what's really sad. You could go home today, at the end of the day, and your wife go, hey, honey, what did you, what'd God teach you today? That's a great question. And you went to Bible study. Because we're trained, it's not that you didn't learn anything, and it's not that God didn't teach you anything. We're just not trained to think about it, to reflect on it and go, well, he taught me he's providential, that he's powerful, that sometimes I have to wait for him. And, but see, we go through classes like this or lessons like this, and then we just kind of forget about him and move on with our life. That's exactly what we see in the story of Esther. And we see at the end of the story that. What does it say? He, Mordecai, sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. He's the one that gets the glory. He's the one that gets the credit. And he didn't even really do it. His cousin did. And she didn't really do it. God did. But God gets left out. And God gets left out of my life and your life. So what's missing in the book of Esther? What have we said for nine weeks now? God. Someone is missing. Who's missing in your life? And I don't say that to make you feel guilty. I don't say that to demean you in any way. I just have to really ask the question, who's missing too often in my life? It's God. But see, the sad thing is, it's not that God is gone. It's just that I no longer look for him or expect him. And I've lost the ability too often to even sense his presence, that he's with me every day, every step of the way. And then to give him recognition for what he's done in my life. You know, we sometimes joke, you know, I'll ask, ask you guys, how are you doing? Well, I'm upright. I'm walking. My name's not in the back of the newspaper. You know, I'm putting one step in front of the other. And, and I get it. I, I say the same things. But, man, to just thank God that you're here, that you walk, that you have life, that you have breath, that you have a job, that you have a wife, that you have... Whatever it is you have, limited or as great as it may be, to thank God that it's all because of him that you're even here. That you can take a breath, that you can walk, that you can talk, that you can converse, that, that you're not like Ray who can't even come here, who would love to be here, but he can't come. He can't physically do it. Recognize him everywhere about you. Here's what Providence teaches us. Look for the hand of God where you least expect it. Look for God. In everything. Recognize his love, even in unlovely situations. Here's what I can tell you about my God, your God. He never falls out of love for you. So if you have something negative happen in your life, do not go to the conclusion. Don't jump to the conclusion, he must not love me anymore. That's the way you parent. That's not the way he parents. 
So recognize his love even when things don't look lovely. Trust his will even when it conflicts with your own. This is one of the greatest problems we have as men especially, but as Western Christians is that I don't like this. I don't like your will because it doesn't gel with my will. Here's my best advice for you. Get over it. Because his will is greater than yours. And guess what? His will is better than yours. He knows better than you. He's wiser, smarter. He's providential. He's all-knowing. He's all-seeing. He knows exactly what you need. And guess what? Whatever it is you're going through right now that you hate and loathe because it doesn't match your will for you is better for you than anything you could ever imagine. And in time, you'll recognize it and see it. His will is better. Rest in the strength, his strength when yours is gone. The saddest thing to me about me and you is that we sometimes have to reach the rock bottom and we run out of complete energy and strength. Uh, that's when we turn to God. But we got to learn to rest in a strength when we just don't have anymore. I don't know what to do. I'm exhausted. I'm worn out. Good. Best place you could be. Depend on his power when yours seems sufficient. See, that's the danger point for, for most of us in the room. I met with a guy just this last week who's in a, in a really bad spot and he's going through some really difficult times and God has his attention. And then we met yesterday and he said, hey, I got this thing that's about to happen that if it happens, it's going to turn everything back on top. It's going gonna, it's, it's gonna to solve all my problems. I said, man, that's the worst thing that could happen to you. What are you talking about? I said, because it's not that that's wrong or bad. It's that as soon as that happens, guess what? You're not, you're not going to need God. He's got your attention. Why? Because you can't fix anything. But as soon as that gets fixed, guess what? You're not going to need God. That's the danger of success as we see it. Depend on his power even when you seem to have the power to fix it yourself. Go, nope, not going there. I'm not going to try to fix it. I'm not saying sit in your can and do nothing. But go to him first and say, is this what you would have me do? Or am I trying to fix something a way that you don't want fixed? What do you want me to do? What would you have me do? And don't assume all is lost until he is completely done. Don't assume all is lost until he's completely done. See, this story took well over a year to, to finalize itself. And all along the way, the Jews were worrying. Where did Mordecai spend most of his time from the day the edict was declared, sitting at the gate in the sackcloth and ashes, waiting for the inevitable. But see, God wasn't done yet. Don't assume all is lost until he's completely done. And here's what I know about your life and my life, that very rarely will what you think is the inevitable happen. We play the what-if game. And we, we, we jump to conclusions and think, well, you know, this is, this, it's all going to end in misery. It's all going to end in defeat. And we don't know the end of the story. Don't assume all is lost until God is completely finished. When will God be completely finished? Next week? Maybe. Next month? Maybe. But he won't be complete. He won't finish his plan until what? His son returns, takes the church, the tribulation happens, he sends his son back, and he ends this thing. That's when it will be done. When we have glorified bodies and we're sitting in his presence, that's when he will be done. So don't assume all is lost until all is done, until God finishes his plan. Go read Hebrews chapter 11, the great hall of faith. 
where it chronicles the life of Abraham and Sarah and Noah and Moses and all these great patriarchs of the faith. And it says they all died in faith, never having received what they had hoped for. Now, what does that mean? That sounds very depressing to me. Where are all those patriarchs right now? Enjoying what they hope for. They're with God. They're in heaven. They're in his presence. They didn't get it in this life. They got it in that life. And see, you may not get everything you're hoping for in this life, but you will get it in the next life because that's the end of the story. That's when he will be done. So that's the story of providence is that God's in control. He knows what he's doing. This is something I wrote in a, in a blog just um, when I was studying the book of Esther. I just want to read this to you. Oftentimes, God uses us in spite of us. He has used pagan kings, egocentric Amalekites, young Hebrew virgins, common fishermen, misguided zealots, reluctant prophets, adolescent shepherds, and a wide assortment of other unqualified, unlikely individuals to accomplish his divine will. Go look at Hebrews chapter 11. The story of Esther is the story of God working through the lives of the unfaithful in order to display his faithfulness. God didn't need Mordecai or Esther to accomplish his will, but he used them anyway. He didn't choose them because their qualifications or potential contributions to his plan. That ought to encourage every guy in the room because guess what? God doesn't need you, but he chooses to use you. Not because of you, but in spite of you. And every one of you, God has something he wants to accomplish through you but in his power, not yours, for his glory, not yours. God is at work and he's at work at my life and in, in your life. So as we wrap this up, I'm going to wrap it up with this poem because it's, it so illustrates what the book of Esther is all about. And for some reason I'm losing power. It's because I'm unplugged. So what does it say? God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and he rides upon the storm. Now, I want you to think about this. This is a poem. We can get real wrapped up in the rhyming and all that. But God moves in mysterious ways. Does anybody in this room fully understand God? No. And if you raise your hands, I want to have a meeting with you. We don't understand God, but he's, he performs these wonders. He plants his footsteps in the sea. He rides upon the storm, which just simply means he's in control of anything and everything. He, deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. So God is out there doing things that we don't even understand. We can't even see. Ye fearful saints, what a great description of us. Ye fearful saints, we're saints, we're righteous. We stand before God as righteous. We're sons and daughters. We're heirs of the kingdom, but we're fearful. And we shouldn't be. Because we have a powerful God. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. So we see the clouds of life coming and they look ominous and they look scary and we get fearful. And he says, no, no, no. What you don't understand is those clouds you fear are bringing you life. They're bringing you blessing in the form of storms. You ever seen what your yard looks like after a storm? where everything looks greener and fresher and there's a smell in the air. That's kind of what he's trying to tell you and I is that God's mercy is going to break on with blessings on your head through what? Through storms. 
So he says, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, human sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. See, we look at the providence of God and go, I don't like that. He looks angry. He looks upset. This doesn't go well. I don't like what's happening. And we see a frowning face, but he says, no, no, no. Behind it is a smiling face. He really does love you. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err. In other words, if you just approach God and life through blind unbelief, in other words, I don't see him, I don't get it, I don't believe, it's going to err. It's going to produce the wrong conclusions. And we scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. When? I don't know. How quickly? Don't have a clue. But God will make it plain if you give him time. He will do what he's promised to do. He will rescue. He will step in. He will guide. He will guard. He will direct. He will produce fruit in your life, even through the pains and the problems and the trials and troubles of life. That's about the providence of God. So here's your last set of questions. How providential has God been in your own life? Think about it. If you haven't seen him at work, where do you think the problem lies and what can you do about it? Here's, here's, uh, here's help. The problem does not lie with God. It probably lies with you. But where have you seen God providentially in control of your life? Believing in providence requires a great deal of confidence in God's love, faithfulness, and power. Why do you think we struggle so much with having confidence in God? What's at the core of that? What's our problem? And then finally, close your time together in prayer, asking God to make you more aware of his presence and providential care than ever before. Please don't skip that last one. If you don't even get to a question, I would rather you spend this whole next time in prayer that God would make you more aware of his presence than you've ever been before in your life. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for these guys. Thank you for their faithfulness. I pray your blessing on their conversations around the tables. I pray that it would be rich and sweet, honest and uh, kind as they listen to one another, as they encourage one another. And Father, may they pray for one another and, and expect great things from you as they begin to learn to look for you in the everyday affairs of life and see you as you work in their lives and as you work out your divine plan, your sovereign will for their lives. Thank you that you're in control, Father. May we see that and trust in that more. And I pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Have fun, guys.